From Oakland, California, I'm Michelle Zambrano, and this is We Are The Voices Radio. Voices Radio is pleased to present inspiring poetry readings and edifying conversations recorded this past fall and in spring and summer 2020. The episodes included in this series feature the voices of nationally prominent activists, scholars, poets, and more. We offer these episodes in the hope that they will contribute to our listeners' well-being and self-reflection and will heighten their awareness and move them to action. We Are the Voices is a Mellon Foundation higher education and scholarship in the humanities-funded project that forges an alliance between arts, literature, and public humanities. We are housed at Mills College in Oakland, California, which sits on the ancestral and unceded land of the Ohlone people. This land acknowledgement serves as just a starting point for accountability and for actions to support indigenous organizations and change movements. This episode is the first of two events on labor and protest, co-hosted by Mills professors Stephanie Young and Juliana Spar. Professors Spar and Young talk with abolitionist scholars Dr. Abigail Boggs and Dr. Nick Mitchell about their scholarly work on academic abolition, university studies, and imagining what might come after or beyond the university. This event was co-sponsored by the Mills College Art Museum. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Uh, My name is Stephanie Young, and I'd like to welcome you to tonight's event. Um, This conversation is the first in a two-part series co-presented with the Mills College Art Museum as part of their programming for Tabitha Soren, Surface Tension, an exhibition featuring photographs by Bay Area artist Tabitha Soren that explore the intersection of everyday technology with culture, protest, and human contact. The exhibition is free, open to the public, on view until December 12th. I highly recommend it. I was able to make it to the opening. It's fantastic. Uh, The second event in this series uh, will welcome Rachel Kushner and Toby Hazlitt in conversation on November 18th, and we hope you'll join us then as well. We Are the Voices is a Mellon Foundation higher learning funded project that forges an alliance among arts, literature, and public humanities. We're housed at Mills College in Oakland, California, the ancestral and unceded land of the Chechenyo and Karkanaloni people for whom this land was and continues to be of great importance. We affirm indigenous sovereignty and right to this land and encourage non-indigenous people who live in the East Bay to consider making a voluntary annual contribution to the Shumi land tax. And I think, We'll drop that link in the chat for you. Uh, before we get started, please note, we will have a Q&A at the end of the conversation. So please feel free to drop your questions in at any time and we'll have time to talk uh, with Nick and Abby about um, ideas that come up over the course of the conversation. So I wanna begin by welcoming and introducing Nick and Abby. Um, Nick Mitchell is associate professor in the Department of Feminist Studies and core faculty in the program in critical race and ethnic studies at UC Santa Cruz. As a researcher, Mitchell has principally engaged the status of higher education in the US as a problem for historical and theoretical inquiry. 
calling into question the presumption that knowledge production is the defining feature of the university. Mitchell's work aims to rethink the context, contents, and political economic foundations of higher education from the 19th century to the present. As a writer, Mitchell aims to make better sense of university life worlds by developing scales, vocabularies, and categories to reframe and rethink its rhythms and textures. These research and writing efforts can be found in essays published in Feminist Studies, Critical Ethnic Studies, The New Inquiry, and Spectre, as well as in two forthcoming books, Disciplinary Matters, Black Studies, Women's Studies, and the Neoliberal University, and The University in Theory, Essays on Institutionalized Knowledge. Welcome, Nick. Uh, and Abigail Boggs teaches at Wesleyan University in Sociology, Education Studies, and Feminist Gender and Sexuality Studies. She is currently revising her first book manuscript, Non-Citizen Futures and the U.S. University, a Genealogy, which critically reads the figure of the non-citizen student in university policy, federal immigration law, and popular culture. And working with Eli Meyerhoff, Nick Mitchell, and Zach Schwartz-Weinstein on a project developing an abolitionist framework for studying the university. Her writing has appeared in the Barnard Center for Research and Women's Scholar and the Feminist, American Quarterly, the Journal of Academic Freedom and Feminist Studies, as well as the edited collection, Mobile Desires, The Politics and Erotics of Mobility Justice. Welcome to Abigail. Um, and I wanna welcome my colleague and collaborator, Juliana Spar, uh, who's actually joining us from um, Virginia tonight, but works at me with Mills College. Um, uh, she co-curated this series. Um, Juliana is a poet, scholar, and I think professor, as I said. Um, her most recent book is Du Bois's Telegram, Literary Resistance and State Containment. Um, so here we are, welcome. Thank you for hearing all the intros. We're all in the room together. Um, so to begin, I just want to I just want to acknowledge all of the things that we really love about your work and what brought us to it, um, which is the main thing is the refusal of half truths about the university as you know whatever you want the last remaining liberal institution, the last place where speech is protected, um, the last meaningful place for debate about whatever your concerns might be. Um, and you write about choosing the word abolition as a, as a way to short circuit the university's claims of a priori goodness, which then in turn makes the university available as a way to be thought about in new ways. And we heard about this um, beautifully written about in your bios actually. Um, so as an object of study that allows us to confront its emergence within the violence of the US state and capitalism. And then on the other hand, um, taking up this abolitionist framework, we really appreciate the ways that it um, Makes, the, makes us think about the university that might be built, what might come next, what are other places and locations and ways of studying and learning together that might be available if we shift our focus away from this impossible task of restoring higher education to some prelapsarian past that's an, really an imaginary. Uh, so at the same time, uh, we're talking to you from within the shared contradictions of our locations as workers within higher education, within very different strata and locations, and really from within the hierarchies um, of the university that are established by the, that, you know, foundational violence, as you write about. Um, so we really, we wanted to, we collaborate a lot, and that was the other reason we were like, we want to talk to people who collaborate um, to, to think about the place where they work together. Um, and we, so we'd love to hear about your collaboration. Um, one of the examples I was thinking about, like thinking about like repurposing institutional resources. I'm an adjunct, Juliana's tenured, and like a very minor personal example is before I was able, or adjuncts were able to apply for travel research funds, um, we would split Juliana's funding and go to conferences together so that I could 
be part of, of sharing research that I otherwise wouldn't have had access to. Um, so we're interested in what you've learned. And I think, I think there is a way that we've really, um, we've learned a lot about the university by working together. I'll just say that. Um, and there's more I could say, but I'll stop. <laughs> um, we're interested in what it's looked like for you. What have you learned by working together that you couldn't learn alone um, or by working individually on this, on, on thinking about the university as an object of study? Um, are there moments when your work has exceeded um, institutional expectations or boundaries or even brought you into contact with some of those material violences um, of the university? Should I go first? Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'm ready. Thank you so much, Stephanie, also for, for, for this introduction and for inviting us. Um, it's really cool to have a history with someone that goes back <laughs> um, as far as mine with Abby's does. And so um, it the, the collaboration has taken different forms. And I also love the opportunity to think about uh, the different ways that it has looked over time. And, you know, um, if folks want to hear about the nuts and bolts um, in collaboration, like how many, how often do you meet? <laughs> uh, like, how do you make those sorts of decisions? I like, I've really come to enjoy being painstakingly practical about things and talking about process. Um, so I have no resistance to those kinds of questions. So just a little bit of background. I think that Abby and I met in 2007 at a queer studies conference at UC Santa Cruz. Abby was in the cultural studies PhD program at Davis. I was in the history of consciousness PhD program at um, UC Santa Cruz. And yeah, we, we were both in grad school in a, a, quite a moment. Um, I think in terms of like really structural foundational problems that defined my grad career, I would say it's just the fact that the university was crumbling. <laughs> um, it, like it, like it, 2008 with the budget cuts acro across the university with the 32% tuition hikes um, in, the, in the University of California and the ensuing uh, protests and confrontations. And um, yeah, seeing students drop out and seeing people struggle um, being a relatively early on graduate student and having not really been apprised to think about the job market situation and then really just having to confront the fact that I was accumulating many, many figures of debt, um, <laughs> uh, untold figures of debt. And um, yeah, the, the means of even thinking about repay any of that uh, by way of a job uh, didn't seem the most um, possible. So, I mean, I think that that really was what pushed me to start studying, studying the university because I didn't know what was going on. Um, I was also not a Californian. <laughs> like I came to California through the university, born and raised on the East Coast. And so just making sense of where I was in many senses um, was, that, was how I started studying the, the, the university. And one of the things that I, I really appreciated about Abby was that she was also the other person who I knew was really studying the university and studying it in a way that felt like it. I mean, 
a lot of the activism of that moment, which produced some pretty incredible um, documents and critiques of the university, was a little bit more like opposition research. Um, it, it, it was looking for the points of weakness to uh, produce critical accounts, to uh, gain rhetorical steam and be a galvanizing force for movements. Um, I think I what, I what I appreciated about Abby was that she had a lot of curiosities about other stuff. And I, I, I felt pretty similar. And um, yeah, like wondering why people are here. <laughs> Literally, why why we're here? What keeps us here? What what brings us here? What grounds us here? Um, and as someone who both has a uh, a sharp critique of universities, and also I know that I probably I came to left politics through universities. Um, I and I think I cr credit much of my political tran transformation um, from my relationship to universities in, in various senses, uh, making sense just like the full flight of contradictions that have to do with being here um, was something that was really exciting to do with someone who also was studying the university with the idea of trying to write through it through for a dissertation project and and um make sense out of it uh there's more to say but i i, I will pass it on to, to abby to uh continue with the thought thanks nick um and thank you juliana and stephanie for for having us and also thanks to tanya and michelle for um all the organizing work and to both our interpreter interpreters i see craig's name right now but i did not catch the other interpreter's name um before we got started i also apologize i speak quickly i will try not to do so but it is a, a poor habit of mine um so yeah i mean i i love working with nick and i love every chance to get to be in conversation with him um and i um Okay, so I guess I, I was thinking about the university as an undergraduate, um, and that was kind of, I got obsessed with it actually my first year as an undergraduate at uh, Wesleyan, where I now teach, which is its own, own little incestuous thing. But um, I was in a course that was about pornography, and it became a national scandal, and it made me obsessed with the ways the university claims this universality, even as it says, um, don't talk about certain bodies, or certainly about pleasure, um, and or really about much that would disrupt that claim to universality. So I, I came to Davis um, to the cultural studies graduate group with the intention of doing a PhD, um, very much thinking about the politics of sex, sexuality, bodies in the university, um, but was um, somewhat quickly <laughs> suggested to me by my advisor, Karen Kaplan, um, that maybe I should think more about the political economy of the institution and look around to see what was going on. Um, at the time, this was in uh, fall 2005, um, which pushed me to think about the transnational politics of the university, because one of the, the major things I saw happening at the time was uh, the first decline since the 1970s in the number of, uh, not, of international students coming to the to U.S. institutions of higher education. And it was causing this big um, scandal, really, for the institutions themselves, but also for the U.S. state. So George W. Bush in his you know, post 9-11 crackdown moments was still radically advocating for international education. We also saw people coming out from Google, from, um, from Microsoft, also advocating for international education, which seemed like this confluence of capital state and the university that I'd actually long been interested in. So it, it sparked that kind of direction from my thinking and writing. And now I've been thinking about the same thing for the last 16 years. Um, <laughs> I should really publish that book and make that get done. Um, it, it will happen, I think. Um, but 
one thing that's been was, was fantastic for me about meeting Nick is that he was someone else who was thinking about the university critically, um, but also capaciously, right? So not through higher education uh, policy studies, not even through kind of most conventional um, education studies frameworks, but rather, you know, coming out of HISCON, um, I was in cultural studies. We were all, we were, both of us were thinking politically, critically, uh, theoretically, historically, um, to try to figure out new ways to think and talk about the university some ways to get out of the contradictions of what it meant to be kind of political queer people in these institutions um, and also to figure out how to be in them. I think by that point we'd both had decided we were going to try to make a life in relationship to these to these institutions even as we had these um, rather deep critiques of, of the work that they are doing in the world. I think we also, as, as Nick was saying, saw some potential right for what we could do within them. Um, again politically, partly because of the moment we are in with, with activism happening around us, but also because of the joy and pleasures and relationships we were making through the institutions, um, which is simply, you know, it continues to be true. Um, it was actually in our collaborations with Zach and Eli for the abolitionist uh, university studies work we've been doing now for three years, is that true? Feels like it's been a while. I don't know. It's Pandemic been a while. makes time weird. Yeah, and... I don't understand. Yeah, but I, th I think three, three, three-ish years. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's actually, I think, where we, or I felt like, I finally had like the grad seminar I always wanted, <laughs> where I was talking with other people who were thinking in similar ways. We were reading together, writing together, and also I think developing a real um, way of talking about and concretizing a methodology for how to think the university. One that Zach and Eli had also been doing in their individual projects um, in American studies and political science, NYU and at Minnesota. Um, and now it's been, yeah, it's the work we're getting to continue to do. And I think much of the work I want to do in the university is, um, is collaborative, but also we have to do this thing where we write monographs to get, to keep our jobs which um, is something I'd be happy to talk about. Also, I would, not to like derail things, but I would love to hear more about your collaborations and, and kind of relationships. I think part of what excited me about this event was the opportunity to um, think across institutions as, as was part of the invitation to us, um, but also to think specifically about Mills as, as I know we'll get to in more detail um, in, your, in your questions. But um, I just wanna put that out there from the beginning that that is a kind of a critical question um, that I know Nick and I are both interested in and concerned about and excited to kind of um, have be kind of at the center of things as much as y'all are comfortable with, with that being the case. That, what is that critical question that you're seeing? Like exactly, it's Mills, but what part of Mills? It's Mills, I mean, it's, it's saying, I, and I don't wanna like jump over to questions y'all have set up for, for later, but you know, what does it, what does the state of, of being for Mills mean right now? What does the state of, I mean, to the extent you want to talk about it, Northeastern, what does that mean in, in this moment um, as it is its own institution, but also as this, I don't know how we want to navigate the politics of this, but maybe an encroaching institution or something else along those lines. I don't know the on the ground situation with Mills, but it does seem like there's um, much to be learned and discussed about kind of what is happening on the ground there um, in the kind of institutional formation and kind of networks with other institutions that are um, playing out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can talk, you can say whatever you want to say and as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I mean, I, everything's so in process right now that I mean, I have like a million thoughts and I can't tell how many million I'll have tomorrow that will, something else will come out that will change them in, in some way. And it's been very, I mean, if I had to say the dominant mode of it, I would say it's confusion <laughs> and, um, in some ways, but there are, I mean, 
putting aside the kind of minutia, there's large kind of questions around it, around what it would do. And actually, I'm just going to go right into this next question, because I actually think it might be part of like the, I mean, Mills is going to have a moment where it's going to be rebuilding as something different or something related or different. And I mean, there's going to be clear boundaries around what that can be, which the next question I want to ask is not about the boundaries. It's more about what, what, how could you get, if you don't have the boundaries of this kind of like institutional histories, or you don't have the boundaries of whatever Northeastern is, or, you know, whatever that is in some way, which is just like in your invitation that you did for abolitionist university studies with um, Eli Meyerhoff and Zach Schwartz Weinstein, you guys, you do this really great history. It's really lovely. Um, everything that you can think of about the university feels like it's in there. Um, and so it's a really, it's really wonderful to read. Um, and then you ask this question, which is what would an abolitionist approach to the university say yes to? And that would, I mean, that's, that's interesting is like, what would you, would you say yes to? And I mean, I always feel when I think about these things myself that I'm like, I'm pro learning. I like the seminar table. I like the lecture. I like exchanges of ideas. Um, I like even the quad, um, you know, and I'm, and it's kind of like, but what, what do we do away? What, but there's all these other things I don't like. And like, what, what, what should be done away with? And um, I mean, you guys have been clearly a part of cops off campus. So one easy answer is the police force, um, which not all universities have in the same way. Um, but it's also like, would you get rid of admissions committees? Would you get rid of tuition? Um, would you hold on to these categories of like faculty and student and janitor? Um, would, would people still get paid? Would people still pay to play in it? Okay, so I, I I I love hearing also that you love the quad <laughs> and the the, uh, the the seminar table. I think that, that, that's important. Just um, I let, let me start by processing a little bit that 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 question about uh, what an abolitionist university would say um, yes to. So, like for for me, the way that I have tried to think about that question is it's less about objects of attachment um, as much as it is to what you strategize for um, and what you're willing to fight for. Um, so I guess it's the way I, I, I put it is it's like the difference between a fuck yes and a fuck no. And a lot of academics are really comfortable in, we're, we love the fuck no space. We love the fuck that, fuck this, uh, fuck, fuck no space. But the there's a certain kind of vulnerability to the the affirmative moment, the fuck yeah, that leaves us exposed to uh, loving something that's problematic, that that feels like complicity. Um, but I do think if we want to make decisions in a collective way about what we want to fight for, um, especially in these moments where we we, we know that we can't have everything, uh, that 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 seems like a really useful strategic mode that can that can be meaningful, but that we don't, when we're in the critical mode, we don't always have so um, available to us. And so, um, I mean, you asked about tuition. I feel like tuition is a great fuck no with a fuck yeah attached, which I mean, which is I think important in this kind of 
um, transitional moment way, because I think I would say, fuck yeah, to wages for students. Um, in th rethinking about how we cast the mode of what uh, uh, institutions obligations to its students are. Um, so the, the, uh, the, idea wouldn't just be about returning to this moment when tuition was low or there was free tuition, et cetera, et cetera, as much as recasting what it means to be in the world of education um, itself and thinking about that as the part of the political situation. And that seems particularly important to, to, to talk about in this moment, partly because it's just, it, it's so impossible <laughs> uh, with tuition being that you, you look at the numbers that, that people have to pay in, in terms of tuition, um, it becomes unthinkable. But that unthinkable thing is especially difficult when you're talking about uh, non-traditional populations in the, in, in the university who, when they come to universities and they don't have the full amount of tuition, they either have to go into debt um, or they have to go into debt and receive financial aid. And that financial aid gets figured almost as if it's a gift from the institution. So it casts those students who have been most marginalized from the institution as if they should be thankful or as if they, they, they are being gifted something from the institution and creates a certain kind of relationship. So when we talk about turning from tuition to wages, we're actually talking about recasting meaningfully the substance of that relationship and what it means to be in education, um, what students should be able to expect from being in the classroom. Now, we don't have to also make the same mistakes of what wages are now. <laughs> I, I think wages are uh, a way of making certain kinds of li life possible. I would also say like they need to be combined with some sort of price ceiling, rent control, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my friend David Stein is the person I, I go to in, um, in thinking through a lot of these, these questions. But um, yeah, just because, uh, wages, if they're just immediately absorbed by landlords, uh, they don't function as, they don't have the liberating effect that we would want wages to have. So I think that like, you know, if we're not talking about full communism yet, uh, like wages for students is a really good place to start in thinking about how we can refigure the, the, the way that we're um, approaching the question of higher ed right now. Oh, you're muted, Abby. Sorry, thanks. Uh, Nick, what I appreciate about how you, you answer that question often um, is, is that the, it's, a, it's, an, it's not a yes, but, right? So often, um, as you were saying, right, the yes becomes a risky position to occupy because to say yes is always to invite the kind of retort of, but wages for students is simply gonna, you know, add, is either impossible or it's gonna have all these issues that we can't anticipate. And another point that you often make that I, I find really helpful um, is the yes and, which is the yes and that the, what happens with the yes is a new form of capture, right? That just getting a, a, the thing that you want, someone says yes to, it becomes a new way of incorporating and actually strengthening the very institution that you're initially being critical of. Um, so I think the risk of, of saying, okay, let, what do we all say yes to? Or how can we all collectively say yes to something so as to not make any of us kind of uniquely at risk of, um, of that, you know, you're wrong to want that or you're like, I want parties. 
right? Like <laughs> I, I would say yes to the quad, sure. I would say yes to the seminar table. I would I would say yes um, to getting a paycheck right now and the way that things are functioning. And I would also say yes to parties and sociality and the kinds of kind of thinking and, and doing that can happen in those spaces um, in unique ways when you have um, pleasure and time together. So, I mean, again, I'm, I'm I guess I'm just a yes person at this moment. <laughs> but, would you guys but, say yes to keeping tenure? At this moment, I don't feel that I'm in a position to say no to tenure. Um, mm -hmm. Having, I don't have tenure. Um, mm -hmm. I would like to have tenure at this particular moment. I would also want more people to have tenure and to have more security for more people in, in work. Um, so do I think, yeah, I mean, Nick, I'd be curious to know what you think of that, but I don't feel like my students have asked this of me in abolitionist university studies classrooms. And I would say, I, I don't know that I can say no to that, but I think there are movements, there's, there's work happening right now. There are, I believe, some bills in process to try to radically change the makeup of our of the faculty across the country, right? To move from having 75% plus of our courses taught by non-tenure track faculty um, who live in different kinds of, different degrees of parity to having 75% of all um, faculty be tenured or tenure mm -hmm. track, which I think is a worth, something worth fighting for right now, to, to my mind. I mean, I, I would say I'm not going to ask, I'm not going to argue against uh, the institution that gives my job security and then ask you to believe me that I don't believe in tenure. <laughs> um, it just, it just seems, it seems like a lot to, to, too much contradiction to ask you to believe me on. Um, but I, I do think that I would want to, there are parts of tenure that I think I would want to do away with, which is the exceptionalizing arguments that 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 are behind it. Um, so the the you know uh, John Dewey AAUP arguments, where the idea is professors are deserving of this kind of exceptional um, exceptional version of job protection. Because because they're analogized to people with, uh, you know, to Supreme Court justices, they need uh, a form of protection to of of, of their conscience to pr to pursue the truth. Um, yeah, I, I think that that very form of exceptionalism has been a really great way of undermining the forms of solidarity that we could actually build through the institution um, as well. Um, and so I, I think that. I, instead of doing away with tenure, I think the, 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 the kind of just standard form of academic exceptionalism, which isn't even an exceptionalism as we know that, that applies to the people who do the majority of instruction uh, in the academy in, in, the, in the first place. So um, yeah, like I, I think that the, the class politics of tenure are what I don't want. Um, the uh, like I, I, I like getting a secure paycheck, and I want more people to have that. <laughs> um, I think that, that that's a, a basic formal thing that is good about tenure that I'm I'm fully ready to say fuck yeah to. But um, yeah, the, the the way in which it operates as a a, a form of institutionally structured for, of inequality is yeah that that's what I want to problematize. Another point I want to bring up on this question before we move along is um, we were we were at an event earlier with um, Isaac Kamola, who's at Trinity College, 
um, has a book coming out on um, kind of Coke money and universities. I forget the name of it, but he it's a co-authored book where he's kind of tracing the networks of Coke brother money that have been um, injected into higher education institutions over the last, I think, like 10 years. Um, he gave a great workshop actually on how to track money at your institution. It was really, really helpful to think about. Um, but one of the things he laid out in his presentation is the, is the ways in which the Koch brothers and other kind of related actors, like political actors, how they see the university, right? As they see the university as this concentration of resources, but also as this kind of opportunity for world-making that by kind of infusing the different institutions strategically and kind of over time with different amounts of capital, um, they're able to shape the, the, the knowledge those institutions uh, create and the kind of teaching that happens at them. And to me, th that's also part of the kind of what do you say yes to about the university, I think from the, from kind of where I would politically affiliate more to the, to the left, right? Kind of maybe in diametrical opposition to, to the Koch brothers on, on most things. Um, and think about, hey, what, what, what in the university do we need to make use of, right? What are the uses of the university um, to go back to Kerr? But um, like, what do we do with the university that we think is maybe necessary and like strategically important to hold on to um, for the politics we'd like to see in the world, right? So kind of leftist abolitionist politics to, to kind of build that, world in which, you know, prisons are no longer the primary social mechanism of, of support and control. Um, and I still think, I do think the university and yes, the seminar table um, provides spaces where that kind of thinking is, is necessary and important. Can I ask another one, Stephanie? <laughs> I mean, what, I mean I what about the endowment? Like, would you get rid of the endowments? Because that's where a lot of these hierarchies, right? I mean, this incredibly hierarchical system um, you know, the way that we can never create, no one can, I mean, you can't even create another Ivy League in some sense, which has something to do with endowment, but also has something to do with like the history around endowment um, that happens. Um, and I mean, that was like a big part of like the Dewey, you know, model that you wouldn't have an endowment because you, you wouldn't be susceptible to things like the, you know, the money from outside. And yet all of those institutions are now currently failing. Um, you know, I also moonlight at Goddard, which has, has been anti-endowment. It's, it's kind of terrible. <laughs> I think the endowment can go. Um, <laughs> legitimately. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, it, like the endowment as the this, um, as this living history of these institutions embeddedness in the processes of, of primitive accumulation um, that is used to continually uh, leverage uh, their position relative to other institutions, relative to workers that gets used uh, in order to invest in all manner of private equity and um, yeah, other instruments that undermine workers' interests themselves. Yeah, the 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 endowment is absolutely a problem. I'm 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 ready to get rid of that one. I think I'm on board with you on that one. Given, I mean, I think we've ever doubted the purposes of endowments, right? I think the the institutional claim is that the endowment is there to secure the future, mm -hmm. which, if you yes, I guess in some senses that makes sense. However, if we look at the fact that all these uh, kind of wealthiest institutions, including my own, including where I work, um, had over 50% returns on their endowments, right? So meaning they were breaking in hundreds of millions of dollars doing nothing, 
right? And just accumulating and, and padding that endowment. And yet we still see, I think this is the case at Duke, for instance, right? Where they're both, both I think adjunct and professors are no longer, aren't, aren't, still aren't actually receiving the proper cost of living increase even, which is a kind of pretty meager ask, right? Pretty meager ask in light of the millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars that were accrued by these institutions just to be held. Um, so I feel like if there's ever a question about the purposes of the endowment, that, that, is, um, that is no longer an argument that stands. I feel like this kind of takes us into this, like maybe getting into the meat of the small liberal arts college. Um, and um, I mean, I'll, I just want to say though, I'm super interested in this idea of um, the, you know, the wage for the student, right? Like wages for education, wages for learning um, and how it like harkens back to the recasting of wages for housework and all of the other kinds of, of wages for, right? That allow us to make visible something that's not visible. But there's something in there that I'm like, oh, I wish we could think a little, something about like tenure, because you both talked a lot about the stable wage of tenure, right? We just talked about like no, not COLA increases, lacking COLA increases. Um, there's something about that wage differential that feels like it's a crucial kind of place of rethinking. Um, but thinking the wages for students, I feel like I'm going to be thinking about that for a second, which again, like, oh, I'm talking way fast. Sorry, I'm going to try to slow it on down. Um, thinking about being at a private uh, school where the kinds of the ways that I've been mean, we talking about recapture of something where you try to do some form of redistribution, like Juliana and I have done so many various forms of trying to redistribute our aid towards other ends that then get recaptured and create sort of inequitable funding situations within our department. So I feel like we're constantly kind of trying to get it back under control because it's basically an inequitable structure. But um, thinking about the thinking about this figure of the small liberal arts college, and I think this is the moment I want to draw attention to this great chart that you have of sort of the periodization of, of the, because we, we're big fans of charts, constantly drawing them, sometimes on napkins. Um, I have um, to give Zach a shout out for that. He was really focused on the chart. He, so I want to make sure he gets all, all the props for, for that chart is excellent. <laughs> Wasn't easy to execute. <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Uh, so that chart, like we begin with the East Coast elite schools, the, the moving into the land grant school, schools thinking about uh, this relationship to both slavery and land theft. And then there's this moment between 2008 to the present where we have like the little, like the closure of the small liberal arts colleges. Um, so that I just want to think about this figure because it feels like we're moving into this deep, intense period of consolidation, right? Like Harvard's not closing. The UCs aren't closing. The schools with the endowments that are raking it in, those privates, they're not closing. There's going to be a lot of small liberal arts schools that do close. So like our school was closing and now it's some becoming something else we don't know what it's becoming we don't know what it means for our wage in the future we don't know what it means for our students what how the student body will change um sorry student body hate that phrase so just how in in this kind of moment of periodization or thinking in these thinking about kinds of forms of accumulation like where where do we where how do you think about this failing small liberal arts college well, I think that I, one of the things I'm interested in, in hearing from you all about is is how it looks like, what it looks like on the ground um, at Mills. And because I think there's there there are some of the, it's harder to understand what the structural determinants are of, of, of the closure without actually hearing from people who are going through it. Um, I, I, so I can talk a little bit about how I see it from like, 
the limited amount of things that um, I know. But I would also say, you know, there's small liberal arts colleges and there's mills. And the the way that Mills has has inhabited being a small liberal arts college, um, whether it has to do with actually recruiting, um, retaining, graduating um, a, a, a number of students of color, a level of students of color, uh, and not um, elite students of color that um, you know a lot of other small liberal arts arts colleges can't actually boast doing at, at the same time like i think that th th there are some of the same structural issues that are going on at a bunch of um a bunch of different places and i mean it's hard to actually talk about what the individual structural de de determinants are as much as it's this a similar set of issues that were kind of dealing with when we're talking about, well, um, it's harder to provide education <laughs> in a context where tuitions in many, if not most uh, pr private schools are 70,000 and, and above when it comes to, when, when you add um, the cost of living on. And so, there hasn't been like a uh, a new deal or a new contract for, for higher education. And the closures are largely the outcome of the fact that um, we committed in the U.S. to a structure of funding education um, that largely made it unsustainable to actually provide education. Um, state schools can act, can stay afloat part, partly because in research universities, there tend to be fewer professors and many graduate students. So they, they stay afloat largely by underpaying um, graduate students and adjuncts at, at, at just kind of a, a stunning level. Um, but at small liberal arts colleges where you can't avoid the cost, especially relative to the, the size of the student body in, in the same way, they run into these kinds of structural problems that make them relatively unsustainable. That And that's outside of the kinds of, of uh, endowment, investment, private equity related fuckery that you'll find at the at the trustee level. So um, th there's oftentimes an intersection of structural problems that you that smaller arts colleges seem to be confronting that present certain kinds of problems. But I, I think that it's even though there are similar problems, there's a lot of really important differentiations that I would make. Um, a lot of the, the small liberal arts colleges that are struggling are small liberal arts colleges in the South that have historically catered to a very, very elite white student population and have not at all shifted, shifted um, who they're thinking about in terms of their student body. Other small liberal arts colleges are, have aggressively tried to rethink what, what their ideal student body is and started recruiting students of color, non-traditional co college students, and try and made that, make that their kind of um, imagined population, but can't make the, 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 the actual numbers work. And so there are so many disparate 
things that are going on um, that it almost looks like that there's so much diversity among what, what we call a small liberal arts college. It's and there are, when you count them, more than there are big state schools. So, so many more than there are big state schools. So um, it's hard to actually universalize about what's actually, what, what's the structural problem that, that's leading them to the situation that they're in right now. Yeah, when I was teaching um, an abolitionist university studies class, both last year and a couple of years ago, um, so, you know, small seminar table at a small liberal arts college, um, well-resourced school, but um, but a small liberal arts college with, you know, pretty politicized students. Um, the kind of disposition of most of the students is more the fuck no critical perspective, right? Like abolition means abolition, not abolition means creativity generation and kind of creating of an imagining kind of new, new worlds, new things. Um, and they were pretty much on board with that and actually kind of resistant to some of the, the things I was trying to get them to do um, for, for much of the semester until I showed them videos or like news clips about the closing of other small liberal arts colleges, right? So there's a one news clip, I think on NBC News or somewhere on the closing of Green Mountain College in Vermont. Um, and once they saw that, right, saw that like actually these, what they're imagining and, and understandably reasonably think of as conservative, kind of age old institutions that have been here forever and will be here forever because of the ways they've, they're kind of um, grounded in and in settler colonialism and racial capitalism. Um, once they saw that there was actually this vulnerability that existed, talking to them about Hampshire, for instance, or, or Antioch or other schools that have kind of teetered, right? Um, then they were willing to think more about what they wanted to say yes to about the university. Then that question became, or the, you know, this, the college, um, that became a more tangible question. And so I, I guess I, I wonder kind of what stories are being told about Mills. It sounds like it's very confusing and still maybe un, um, unresolved in many, many ways, but who's telling what kinds of stories um, and where in the stories are the things that, are, that are people are most um, intent on holding on to? right, or that you all are most intent on holding on to. I mean, it's interesting because in a way, I feel like, Nick, when you describe the, you know, the school that was serving a certain kind of like white elite student and has decided to change and rethink who, who, well, who does it want to work with, right? That's Mills in some way, right? Like the, our, our student population change, demographic shifted radically. And then that piece about like the numbers not, not working out, especially if you're going after, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're like a queer, neurodivergent, poor, working class, super racially diverse um, group of students. Um, and that piece about the numbers not working out. And then this question of, I feel like one of the discourses or one of the stories that we've been hearing a lot is about the value of the student, the value of a certain kind of social justice. And then that question of like, to, to what ends for, is that true? Um, what is, I think there's a lot of tension around, you, we hear this constantly, like I was at a union rally yesterday for the newly formed staff union. Then um, there was a lot about like, how does the, how does the mission, how is the mission borne out um, in actual, practice. And then I think among faculty, I think there's a real question about what will, what will those commitments be? And what is that, what is, what is that story being told for? And I don't, I don't think we know what that story is being told. It might just be being told because it's the story of the moment, right? Like you point a lot, to, and that's the other thing we love about your work is the, the ways in which, you know, you point towards how university PR departments love to say like, oh yeah, look, like it's so terrible, <laughs> you know, we own slaves, we're so bad. And, and now we're moving into this wonderful new future in which we've acknowledged that and then we can move on without changing anything, right? Um, so that, I don't know, that feels like one of the things that's really up for grabs right now is, is um, 
that narrative. And it, it's one of the most vexing ones. I mean, when you were talking about that, I kept thinking about the contradictions um, in some way, like even within myself in which like, I mean, I've long had this critique of Mills at various moments, um, you know, the old, the old Mills feeling caught by these kinds of, um, you know, women's colleges come out of patriarchy and they're defined by patriarchy and it's hard for them to think of themselves, you know, as, as, as otherwise in some way you know, to this kind of moment with this kind of when we got, when the student body changed, which was really lovely in many ways, but we're also, it was really, Mills is really expensive. And I mean, I think we were, Mills is doing a great job of educating that student, putting them at the seminar table, not cramming that student into like what's happening at like the, you know, schools that are kind of like, edu you know, not putting them in classes with a hundred in some way and really trying to kind of like, you know, think about what, the, what it meant to kind of have like a, a student body that was different than the one it had prior. Um, and that, it just, I, I think I just kind of saying something like, I just cut like that kind of moment in which like my, my critique kind of like, <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with it or something like, right? Like I'm critical and I still want to have a job and I still feel sad. Um, and um, I don't, I haven't found a way out of that finally. I find the situations that you can't rhetorically like emancipate yourself from are probably the most generative <laughs> uh, because we don't have a form of rhetoric to like just try and flatten things out. Uh, and you're kind of stuck in various poles, which feels very human <laughs> to me in, in some really, really Im Im important um, ways. I, I mean, I'll also say just, um, I think that there are so many students for whom the kind of education that you get at a small liberal arts college is one, it's a, a mode of getting education that can work in in ways that other contexts it just won't. <laughs> the large, uh, large lecture courses. I'm, 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 actually one of those people uh as in, like i teach huge lecture courses now as a professor that i would have absolutely hated as an undergraduate because i didn't feel at home unless i was in a relatively small classroom in which i knew the names of everyone and felt like i could take certain kinds of risk otherwise i would I, I would never raise my hand and i found that ironically uh at a women's college uh i went to columbia but basically you know i i was uh i was effectively a Barnard College uh, undergraduate. And so I, I think that, you know, the the value of what you find <laughs> at, at, at these places as a very particular motive of doing education, it's, it almost feels like a setup in those, the, the, those cases where those colleges have been successful in, uh, in actually recruiting and matriculating first generation students, uh, students that a few generations past would have been unthinkable. Um, and then it's right in those moments when they are, they are threatened um, with closure. And I think in many ways, it's not a coincidence, um, but it, it, it just re it underscores for me the importance of really having arguments about when we're 
making the case for the value of education, like it's not, the, the state school should not be the platonic ideal. <laughs> the big state school should not be the platonic ideal of what it means to execute education successfully. And there oftentimes is an understanding of, well, if you want to have large scale, public higher education, it's gonna look like Michigan State University. Um, whereas we have the existing infrastructure to do it very differently at scale, um, but we're just not utilizing it. Um, and I think that's just a useful way for, for of, of reframing the problem. We have the infrastructure and the labor force, right? We have the people who want to do the work, who want to do the teaching in different kinds of ways. One of the things I was advocating for, like early pandemic, which is not a time anyone wants to go back to for sure. It's, a, it's been awful. But there was that moment, I think, for a lot of folks um, on the left who, where there's this, you know, the, the whole portal question that Adania Roy was writing about that, you know, what what's going to be possible now? And even, you know, I hear Patina Love talking about, you know, this was a moment when we actually did get rid of some standardized testing, where all of a sudden computers were available for every student who needed one and all these things that, you know, probably won't be possible moving forward, but there was a moment where things started to materialize. Um, I was so hopeful, <laughs> which is very naive, I know, but that there was a potential that, um, that we actually, for schools that wanted to keep going, if you wanted to do Zoom school, you would have to, if you want to do the liberal arts Zoom school, you have to hire a ton more people to teach these small classes. And that's the only way to do it actually well. Um, obviously that didn't happen, but it can you imagine, right? If that had been the moment where all these folks got to start teaching in the kind of small liberal arts format, which kind of did work on Zoom when it was small, really small classes. It didn't work when you had more students and screen space, but it actually, there was a kind of possibility of access and, and, um, and teaching and intimacy even that was different there. Um, Cause we do, I mean, we have the infrastructure, but we also have the people who want to teach and who want to do this work and who could do, so, do it so brilliantly. Um, I think, you know, so many of my closest friends from graduate school are not currently in tenure track positions and they're, you know, not to be cliche, but they're some of the smartest people I know who I learned so much from. And it's it's just infuriating to, to watch it be otherwise. I just wanted to underscore the the uh, the good old Mark Bousquet line um, that it's not, you know, we don't have an oversupply of PhDs. We have an undersupply of secure employment. Um, and that that we've we've got the means to actually do work like that. It's just that there's a certain kind of of work <laughs> that people are 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 trained fully to do um, that is under like undersupplied in a way that is um, secure and fairly waged. To, if I could ask a, a sort of question around that, I think it's maybe slightly wandering, but I'm trying to think about the relationship between the UC and Mills. And I rem was remembering like years ago being in a faculty meeting and it was announced that Berkeley was cutting their admissions and the faculty cheered um, because our admissions rate were felt to be so directly to the amount of people that got into Berkeley. And that's changed because Berkeley's now impenetrable, right? By any kind of like student, the, the Mills student and the Berkeley student have gone into like very different kind of realms in some way. And then we had this period where we were, there was this, per, you know, potential UC Berkeley merger that kind of fell 
through and it fell through for a bunch of reasons, some of which we probably don't even know, but you know, there were, there were like these points of trouble we could say, and you know, one of them was, um, it wasn't, it, they didn't want our students and they didn't want our faculty. <laughs> they wanted, they wanted our, our beautiful buildings. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I mean, whatever it was, but I, I think I'm trying to ask a question about like, how do we see, like, one of the other, to throw one last thing in here, which is like, I've, there's that way in which the mill student, right, they pay the double tax. They pay to maintain the UC system, which they cannot get into. And then they have to go pay and take out loans for, for to get into mills. And I'm just trying to think about like how to like, I mean, California has this particular version of it because it has this very elite UC system and that a lot of other states kind of don't have in the same way. But it's hard for me to understand like what our relationship is to each other. And that's not like cheering when, when, when the school gets more, gets less people get admitted. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a, a, a whole lot to say there. And it's it was something that was also that when I moved to California the fact that public also I came from Connecticut which where everything is is distorted in Connecticut um as Abby will will, will attest to um but yeah the the idea of of a institution of public higher ed being such a behemoth um, as as the UC and being a behemoth at, at the same time so exclusive it it it's hard to really grasp um, once I actually read the master plan for higher education it I wouldn't say it made more sense, uh, but I, I did have a set of a set of explanations why, because of the way that that was just basically a racialized track system, uh, it, like built into the the heart of education um, in in the state at the same time. But it, it still didn't. What it didn't clarify was how the relationship between like public and private institutions was to play out. Although at the same time, the, the, the history of Berkeley and the history of the UC, in fact, has been one of absorbing other uh, formerly private education institutions. Uh, e even the, Ber the Berkeley campus came into being after the College of California folded and uh, lended its, its own facilities to the state. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting the way that California kind of has this way of of bridging and also um, a multi-tiered system that competes with the private institutions as well. Nick Star, UC expert. Um, <laughs> but I do actually go back to, uh, again, to Isaac's um, presentation from earlier and thinking about what else the UCs do for California, right? They are this, I and mean, also as a graduate of, of UC Davis, um, like, I do think the UCs are, are highly elite and accessible, and yet the presence of those 10 campuses, 11 campuses now, right? Yeah, with, with um, Merced, right? Of those campuses, do something more from Cal for California beyond just which students are attending them, right? I think that there's a, a, a there are 
not to, again, I feel like I'm being such like a Pollyanna in this, but like that there's a way that, you know, it matters in Northern California or it matters in the, in the Davis area that Davis is there. I think that there are, I have a student who's writing a, a very critical uh, thesis right now about like why Wesleyan sucks and is destroying Middletown, which I think is in part largely true, but also these institutions are doing more and serving more purposes, I think, than just the students who are attending them in terms of both the economy, but also kind of what gets thought about, what, what's what's kind of imaginable as possible. Um, so I, I'm, yeah, I guess I'm just wondering what else the university does in the space beyond the kind of education of, of individual students as a kind of um, a space of thought. And yeah. Well, I mean, we know it does some good things and it does a lot of terrible things too, right? You know, it's like a really tied in with the military industrial complex that, you know, Berkeley has really close ties with Monsanto that they've, you know, <laughs> had a very complicated narrative around, you know, and, but, you know, at the same time, there are these other things and it's kind of like, I don't know, it's just something, sometimes I feel like that when we talk about this stuff, it's just so big and so contradictory that like, it's hard to figure out like how you, kind of have a conversation even around it. But I mean, one of the other ways we frame this question is sort of what does it mean in this in this kind of like highly inaccessible location of the UC? Like how is how can it be also a meaningful side of struggle, which is probably a larger question about kind of that consolidation that we were talking about earlier. Um, yeah, and I think it also is maybe tied to this what else does the university do? Right, because the, the flip side of this is, of course, like the policing and the way that the policing spills outside of, right? Like the, the, the relationship to that community. So I, yeah, that question of like, of how, how, how can these highly elite and mostly, especially in California, very inaccessible locations be sites of struggle? And, and maybe that's another question too, about thinking about this, like what relationship might we have to each other? Like, if, you know, Mills doesn't have a police force, right? <laughs> um, so what, what are the forms of like organizing and thinking together that might be possible to be cross-institutionally even there, which I know wasn't part of how we were thinking about this, but it's coming to mind now. Well, I mean, I think that the, the UC is the biggest employer in California. Um, and so just by virtue of that, I think it's a really important site of struggle um, because it's just got so, like it's got so if you count undergrads it's got so many people that it would be one of the, the biggest cities in uh in in the state if you just counted it together um and the amount of capital that that runs through it the way that it functions as a landlord um the if, if this is why I also think it's just really useful to, to when we reframe college students uh, and graduate students as unwaged workers, then we it, it opens up a different frame for thinking about how that struggle can be cast. And in the Bay Area, I appreciate the fact that the history of student struggle here makes it so that we don't even need to think about it that abstractly. Uh, we just look at San Francisco State. Uh, we, we just look at the, the the struggles at Berkeley. We look at look, look at Merritt College and look at the ways that those struggles actually just moved moved from site to site in different moments. Um, not just in the '60s, but um, you know the 
student organizing at San Francisco State had a massive impact on the anti-austerity movement at Berkeley um, in 2008 and 2009. So the, uh, the, the kind of on the ground things that people who are in this orbit are doing really has a, a, major, um, a major influence um, on what's going on. And I mean, having been, having been one of the faculty who attempted to um, do my best in showing up in solidarity for the Wildcat strike at UC Santa Cruz um, back in, 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 in 2020, um, I think that that was just a really powerful reminder of how important it is to think about uh, cross-institutional um, labor struggle. Um, and how the, the ways in which a, a different labor struggle that is faced off, uh, that, that's basically attempting to get a cost, in, cost of living adjustment so that graduate students can actually live without um, rent burden, uh, had the possibility of actually becoming a uniting issue for graduate students across the system if it hadn't run headlong into a pandemic. <laughs> um, Right, as uh, I think eight other campuses had pledged to come out on strike in um, in response to the fact that UC Santa Cruz um, had fired um, the graduate students who were withholding grades um, as part of the, the, the first phase of the Wildcat strike. And so I, I think that rethinking what counts as a labor issue and understanding that the old framework of colleges produce a certain kind of upwardly mobile elite is not really tracking with the results of, of, of what college is producing nowadays, allows us to really reframe what the, these kinds of inter-institutional struggles can um, look like. And also like what kind of, uh, what kind of boat that we're in collectively as well. I mean, I, maybe that would let us go to the question about the, um, sorry, <laughs> about the um, occupation schools um, that we kind of had and which, I mean, in that piece that you guys collectively wrote, we, you mentioned the Black University and the Pu'u, Hulu Hulu University at, um, in Hawaii. And I mean, I think it's thinking about like, I was trying to think about it like as a, like similar to like that, like these kind of like beautiful utopian moments, which actually that cola strike was looking like it was going to be like when it, when it looked, I was, it was, so, it was super exciting. This idea that the UC's um, students, uh, grad students could go out together. Um, it was like, I was like, oh, that, that will be game changing in a way that a global pandemic was also game changing, unfortunately, around that. But I mean, I'm thinking about these kinds of moments where we have these kinds of like free school models. Um, they feel very tied to political education. They feel very wonderful. Um, they also feel very, very limited and they're very fleeting. They tend to fall apart. Um, you know, they often try to continue on and then follow apart after the occupation ends or after whatever happens. 
Um, and then this kind of like juxtaposed against it, these kinds of models that like Coursera or YouTube, which have, be have begun to almost kind of substitute as a form of free school in a different way. Um, but, you know, they're stuck in the, all that's going into like the corporate, the, you know, like these weird corporate platforms. Um, and so, I mean, I mean, I'm just kind of trying to think about like what, I mean, how do, how do we think about these other forms of education that happen outside of this kind of traditional university structure? And can they have an undercommons? I think that is the other kind of like fascinating question to me. Like what would the under Coursera undercommons? Right? Like <laughs> Um, well, I, I mean, I think that I think and I don't want to I, I don't want to jump the gun on this. I don't want to be wrong on this. I think Coursera might have jumped the shark. Um, I think that the massive open online courses, I think that they've lost investors. Um, they've lost investor confidence. Um, once the numbers started coming out about how many people were taking them um versus how how many people completed the courses versus how many signed up for the courses uh the 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 confidence that they might actually structurally undercut um brick and mortar campuses was really uh, pretty deeply um undermined i mean i think that for people who are very self motivated you you can do the coursera stuff you can do the khan academy stuff it's it's there it's available but there is a reason people keep on choosing um the campus uh, experience. And part of that has to do with what is not replicable in those formats is the culture um, of, of being on campus and the, the, the culture of, of, of campus life in the, the many cultures of, of campus life, which in which embodied experience is really a, a fundamental um, part of it. My students last year, I mean, like, they may have enjoyed their classes, but they were pretty miserable, um, especially the first year students who were, um, you know, zooming from home and just waiting for the moment uh, when they could actually relocate. Um, and so I, I think that I don't worry too much about those replacement, uh, like those attempts to replace those experiences but I do want to say something about the kind of fleeting um the the, the fleeting stuff um so my dissertation was on black studies and you know the, the the black university concept was a concept that was um devised by black student activists that were trying to think about a total institution that could serve the community for the purposes of black liberation and that certainly did not come into being though it did give rise to a lot of different experiments um part of the re part so part of what i want to talk about is just like at the same time, the people who created Black University also created Black Studies formations, and those certainly have continued, um, though not without the contradictions of having to survive in the institutions, especially in a political environment that radically differed from the that the people who were trying to formulate them were trying to bring into be, into being. Um, but at, at the same time, I think that the the University movements are 
out of necessity going to seem ephemeral. Um, because universities as institutions, insofar as they rely on student movements at, at their foundations, university movements are going to seem ephemeral because we exist in, a in an in institution where if you fail, you disappear from the institution. If you succeed, you disappear from the institution. So the political economy of the, of the institution pushes out its most experienced organizers uh, as a as part of what what it, it it does, and that means that institutional knowledge is constantly being lost in a way that you're already always playing a losing game in terms of um, in terms of sustaining it. Um, I think that should th both temper our expectations about what comes out of those kinds of uh, what can come out of those kinds of movements, as much as not. I I wouldn't want it to to feed into cynicism about what what can be accomplished because th those people who are building those things still exist and they go on to build things that are not in the university as well. I mean, do you, this might go into this question that's been asked. Should we just move right into it? It's a question from the audience. Do you say the audience names when you do this? Uh, yeah. Okay. Put their name there. <laughs> Zachary Ryan Brown has asked, um, could you talk, could you all talk about maybe some of the critiques of the university from 1960s black radicals and how they extend some of the current concerns of an abolitionist university project. Nick, I'm gonna keep leaving that one to you because it's, I think something you write about more than I do. Yeah, I mean, they had a lot of critiques. <laughs> Where do you wanna start? <laughs> um, okay. I'll, I'll start with, with one that's not usually um, cited as a, a critique, as a, a Black student critique from the 1960s. And that that is the critique of tenure. Um, you'll see this in, in Sid Walton's book, The Black Curriculum. Um, and one of the reasons that Black students critique tenure is because the people who had tenure were white. <laughs> Um, and the, the, so they saw tenure as one mechanism whereby white supremacy um, installed itself at the level um, of the institution. Um, the classes in fields like Black studies that were being shaped, they were being taught largely by students and by autodidacts and by people who did not have the traditional credentials of the university and who were going to be therefore ineligible for tenure. Um, and so oftentimes that, that critique, what the idea of tenure meant that white supremacists had employment for life. Um, and so like they, they offered a refreshing look at what happens when you don't think about tenure as a, a, a race neutral mechanism for the reproduction of the university um, as, as a social um, institution. And at the same time, when you're in a moment when people think they are, well, in, 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 the, in the throes of revolutionary transformation, um, some of the longer term implications of what it would mean to 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 say uh, to completely eschew tenure um, are not things that they're really working about or worrying about. Um, the 
getting rid of tenure or not worrying about tenure or opposing tenure also meant that you could build new lines of accountability. They saw tenure as meaning that someone had relationships primarily of accountability to the rest of the scholarly community rather than to the Black community. And so uh, avoiding a tenure structure in that way could actually build new lines of accountability in what it meant to do university work um, as well. And so I, I think that that is one of the best critiques of tenure that that I I I have encountered, and it brings up relations of basic accountability um, and how how tenure can reproduce a certain kind of of entrenched power at the level of of, of university employment as well. I think also that helped when rent that that was much more practicable when rent was low <laughs> um in, in in a context where people could get by relatively easily on part-time employment uh it, when people could pay rent by taking on one or two classes um and adjunct that way and it wasn't um it, it wasn't live, living at poverty wages for an extended period of time. But um, yeah, it, that context gave rise to that critique. I don't think that in the political and economic conditions that we are in today, that critique would mean the same thing. So that that's just one example, but I think it's a, a, an underrepresented and useful one. Yeah, I mean, that's, I keep Wanting to come, I can't. I feel like it's really hard to have a conversation about tenure when you have tenure, and even when you don't have tenure, like either side of it becomes this really hard conversation. But I mean that that summary that you just gave. I mean that holds for other categories as well, right? I mean that there would be a reason to potentially be questioning of what gets upheld in it um, at the same time. I mean, I don't. I just feel. I just feel. Tenure is something that I just kind of like go around in circles around and I can't quite figure out like what my relationship is to it. I don't even know if I have it anymore, to be honest with you, or I have had it since they fired five tenure professors or however many that got fired, um, you know, which was a financial emergency, quote unquote. Um, so, but, you know, so what does it mean? To, what, do we, what does the name even mean? I don't even know anymore. But, Most tenure um, mean with Wasabi in Georgia also, right? If mm -hmm. tenure can essentially be evacuated in one state, yeah. it doesn't. Yeah, what does it hold at this at this point? That's where that critique still feels really useful, right? Because like, it's like, what what is it? What is it? What is its last remaining piece? What is it protecting? Um, is it the institution, and not the worker, and not the faculty member? Um, I just want to say that there. I just want to say, folks in the chat, please feel free to get some more questions as you have them. Um, I was thinking about like, think you know, I just I kind of want to ask a personal question because I was thinking about. Um, uh, in, among all the structural pieces, like I was thinking about how the experience of this right now is uh, for, I think for, I don't think I can speak for Juliana, but I, I know for between us, there's a lot of like reverberation of sort of like grief and uncertainty. Like we've been sharing these articles about like how long can you live with uncertainty? Um, and I've, I've been feeling like, oh, well, I've been living with a lot of precarity for a lot longer time. I don't have tenure, never had the chance to get tenure. So like, I'm fine, but like, I'm I'm just super duper not fine. Um, but you said something earlier about collaboration and, and I should say too, I should foreground like part of the Part of that grief is sort of like we've had side-by-side -side offices right so even as we weren't meant to work together for 15 years nothing structurally says that we should have that kind of colleague colleague relationship we have had it by accident by 
some things have allowed us to be together in ways that are now threatened and we won't be together in the same ways. Um, so I'm thinking about what you said earlier about collaboration and like finding a way to be in the university together. And um, I'm thinking also about these kind of contradictions, like we can't think about tenure if we have it or if we don't have it, but how has your work together, like, do you feel like you've found a way to be inside of these contradictions? How has your work together been part of that? Um, have those contradictions deepened for you? I mean, Abby, it sounds like you're 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 on the track, but you don't have it yet. <laughs> and Tommy, thinking what you said about like friends who don't from grad school. And I mean, Zach and Eli, who we write with and meet with weekly, pretty much and have for a very long time. Neither of them are, are um, in tenure track positions. Um, both are still are teaching and in, 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 well, no, Eli's not teaching at the moment, um, working in relationship to universities or teaching or working for universities. Um, and that's, I think it introduces complications and dynamics, but one that I've actually, to be honest, been incredibly impressed by how they've navigated it. And I think how we've all found ways to navigate it together. Um, I mean, you're talking talking about being in, in offices next to each other, I think, and going back to the question about the online universities, I think the, the thing that these spaces do provide is sociality and time. Um, even if the time for the, of the student is somewhat fleeting, I think many of us have been, it seems like in relationship to universities for a very long time. Um, it, it certainly feels that way for me now. Um, but that's such an amazing thing to have is, is time to think and time to be together and time to like create new spaces or fuck up spaces and then go back <laughs> through them and, and continue to go. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I think Nick started off by just saying that we've known each other for 14 years and been thinking together for, for that period. And that's just, the longevity and that in some way that's something provided by the conservatism of the university which retains this institution through which to think it to think through and to think against um and so what is i don't know i don't know that again that's another contradiction that how do we make make sense of that and kind of inhabit that contradiction um and the kind of harms that that also brings even as it creates these possibilities yeah. we just got a question from a chat from the chat which may um sort of I think it's part of this, um, which is from Astrid. I'm interested in this post-pandemic moment in which there has been, to different degrees, a dematerialization distribution of the classroom space. Um, and there seems to be new sites, both for the university's enclosure, but also new sites for critical university studies, um, which seems, yeah, I was, when you were talking earlier about like the, the intimacy of the Zoom classroom and what's available, like to a certain extent, there's parts of Mills that are still, I'm still in that. I still have the kind of great luck to be working with a small grad cohort um, because we don't have, there's not sort of capacity to do both the in-person and the online. So we're, we're, we're together because some of us are in Brooklyn, some of us are in Arizona, some of us are here. Um, so I've been a little bit like, oh, I get to be in this other space where we can have a different kind of conversation actually. Um, so I don't know, thoughts on that one? I mean, in some ways that is also, it's actually the, the failures of the dematerialization of the of the classroom, I think also really matters going back to Nick's discussion of Coursera and kind of the ways it hasn't it hasn't worked. <laughs> um, I think if, you know, my, my the president of, of Wesleyan is a big um, MOOC fan. If you read one of his, or his first book on the university, um, he talks about his own um, MOOC that he ta taught for many, many, many people. Um, he still wants to have a Wesleyan online um, something. Um, I, I don't, I actually see how that would work, but it's it's something he talks about. Um, but if Coursera and YouTube University aren't taking over right now during the pandemic, 
um, where there is this, this was, there was a dematerialization and kind of shift of where the university classroom space is. Um, that seems to actually be one more point to kind of the, not that that's not the inevitable future, right? If it's not now, then it doesn't seem like it's going to be later, especially given the pressures I know I've been under to be back in the classroom, right? Like Wesleyan was like, you will be back in the classroom or else. And I think we've seen that across many institutions where what, what had been this kind of devaluing of the in-person teaching experience um, seems to no longer be on the table when it turns out that the institutions want uh, room and board, but also maybe see something different about what actually happens in the space of the classroom. So I don't know where Astrid was going with, because um, I think in some ways it actually suggests the kind of reclosing down of the enclosure of the university, right? That it actually needs these, this kind of physical space that, um, in order to, to continue to operate as it, as it has at least. Um, do you have any responses to that question? Yeah, I mean, not not. Ex I, I I'm trying to think about what the new the new place for for critical university studies is, and if, if Astrid could share, uh, like what their impression is of, of 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 what that is, I I would love to hear about it. But I mean, I, I do think it. I'm I'm not out of pandemic mode. I'm still doing like like I have not been to Santa Cruz and months um and i've only been to santa cruz twice since march of of, of 2020 um so I, i'm doing all my teaching i probably there's a good chance i will set foot on campus once this academic year um maybe twice um i'm teaching 250 students this quarter i'm teaching th 320 students next quarter um partly because the, the pandemic forced me to get good at online teaching and online teaching at scale. And we don't have classrooms big enough to have that many students and social distance at the same time. So my classes are staying on online um, because of that. But it's it's certainly created new intimacies between me and my students. Um, I, I, I had one, I, I have mandatory office hours meetings with my students. So I had one student, students uh, will start meetings at work. I've, I have one student log into a meeting from Metro PCS um, and, and like help a customer in the, in the middle of the meeting. And so like actually, odd forms of of intimacy and connection and i i see students homes i meet their parents uh in in, in context I, I, I wouldn't have done that so i mean i i think that the the there's one way of thinking about the this university format as distance but it's also i'm seeing parts of my students world that i never ever ever saw before so um it, it's an odd set of contradictions in that regard as well so we'll say that that means nick does meet with 250 students one-on-one -on -one in a semester it's very hard to schedule with him sometimes during certain parts of the year I mean, Nick, that's kind of interesting that you're doing, making the big classes work in some way, because one of my theories about why Coursera kind of failed or these kinds of things fail is because they don't have exchanges of ideas, which is why I've actually found teaching like poetry workshops on Zoom actually much, I would, I'm, at this point, I almost prefer it because it lets me, lets me work with a screen and we can all write, to, you know, there's all these things that I can, I, it ends up being like new technologies in some way. But it seems like, I mean, if you're able to do like, a 300 person class, right? Then you're dealing, you're talking head for most of it. 
it's talking head and then it's like I've had this too where like I've I've had I had more than one student be sort of like in like getting on the way to work right like the boundaries between work and school were like way 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 more fluid or even moments where I was like you might be doing both things right now um maybe I can't quite tell um which is the other moment here I just want to say is I want to say that I know that Nick and Abby were both at a conference all day this is like their second or third panel <laughs> and it is late in some parts of the world so I want to we're gonna we're gonna start to wind up I want to thank you both so much for being here I want to thank you to Juliana it's a real like pleasure to get to think and talk together um I was just I wish we could all go out to dinner and um, maybe someday we will all go out to dinner and keep talking because this conversation has been really um rich and I super appreciate it. Um, my other thank yous tonight are to Stephanie Hayner and Krista Cesario at the Mills College Art Museum, to Michelle and Joshua and Tanya who make everything work in, a, in make everything work, let's just be clear. Um, to our interpreters tonight, Craig and Mike, um, to my colleague Kirsten Saxton, and to our collaborators Susan Stryker in the Trans Speaker Series. I just want to give a shout out. There's two events coming up that we hope you'll join us for in that series. Um, well, Susan will be in conversation with Misha Cardenas on October 28th and Leila Weifer on December 2nd. And then Juliana and I will be back here talking with Rachel Kushner and Toby Hazlitt on November 18th. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much to the audience for being with us tonight. Um, it's weird to be in this room where you're not in here with us, but I know you're out there. I feel you. Thank you for your questions. Um, so good night to all. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great. Thanks. That's it for this episode on WATV Radio. We appreciate you joining us and listening in. Have any questions about this podcast, any of our guests, or have topics that you'd like for us to explore for future programming? Feel free to reach us on our socials. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at WATV underscore Oak. And on Facebook, we're at WATV dot Oak.